Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a staff writer for The New Yorker, who covered China for the magazine for several years. He returned to the US in 2013 and published Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth and Faith in the New China, which won the National Book Award and was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. Last year, he published a best-selling biography of Joe Biden. His new book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, tracks the growth of rage and division in the US by looking at three diverse places, West Virginia, Chicago and Greenwich, Connecticut. Evan Osno, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dorian. Now, obviously, you can't cover everything, but I, I was wondering now that China sort of becomes a bigger story every year. Do you ever miss your old beat and wish you could be, wish you could be, you know, certain story comes up and you wish you were there? Oh, I do sometimes. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I, I get over to China a couple of times a year and, and write about it for The New Yorker. But one thing that surprised me, Dorian, was that when we moved back, my wife, Sarah Bath, she initially lamented. She said, you know, moving back to the U.S. is going to be so dull. Everything is going to be so predictable. There's no, you know, great dramas. It's not a country rising out of its own history. And I said, yeah, this is really going to be a slog. And actually, um, you know, sometimes I sort of... <laughs> I wish for the quiet of Beijing, um, but uh, <laughs> so it goes. It's a good problem to have. Well, Wildland starts with your, your homecoming, and you, and then throughout the book, you note some sort of surprising similarities between America and China. What developments did you see there that you just you never expected to see mirrored back home? Well, one of the things that staggered me, frankly, was that I had come to understand China within the context of the literature of authoritarianism and propaganda. I mean, I would often go back and read Hannah Arendt, who would sort of help us understand how people who live in a system in which they are being, let's be blunt, sort of systematically deceived by a ministry of propaganda, how very often people will begin to discount the truth of anything. And they kind of begin to they acquire a certain cynicism and go through life beginning to doubt anything. So, and you certainly saw that in the Soviet Union and you see it to some degree in China where people are just completely skeptical. And what surprised me, to be honest, was that I came back to the US and found that there had been so much deception in American politics that you know, people at the head of the major that heads of the Republican Party had been lying to their members for so long about so many things that they had begun to discount the truth of anything. And I, I think you can't understand how Americans began to be so strangely hostile to science and to fact and to received elements of, of truth without looking at what led them to that, which was this expectation that their leaders were lying to them. Because I suppose that w what some people would assume about China is because there is a sort of a state ideology, as people often assumed, it turned out wrongly about the Soviet Union, that, that your sort of average citizen was a great believer. But you're saying that there's a kind of, it's more a sort of pervasive cynicism about what's true and what isn't. And in that sense, that can be happening in a democracy as well. Yes. I think that one of the features of American politics of the last two generations, really going back to the late 1960s into the 1970s, has been the engineering of the technologies of deception, by which I mean things like public relations and propaganda in service of tobacco companies. I mean, some of the most interesting and it turns out influential features of American 
political history were pioneered by the tobacco companies, which sounds like an obscure reference. But remember, they're the ones who came up with the idea that if we can doubt the science, if we can manufacture doubt, as it's known, then ultimately we can create the illusion of a controversy and that this will allow us to sustain our businesses for a long time. You then saw that practice adopted by the fossil fuel industry in questioning climate change. And you then saw that then also adopted by elements of the Republican Party in questioning the sanctity of American voting long before the 2020 election. You you heard people saying, well, there's voter fraud, when of course statistics showed there was almost no voter fraud. But that pattern of manufactured doubt turns out to have been, in many ways, I think, the precedent, the preamble to the kind of epistemological crisis that the U.S. confronts now. And you mentioned a, a fascinating sounding book about traveling through post-war America by, by John Gunter, which is another homecoming because he'd been off covering World War II. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it and why you found that a kind of useful reference point at the beginning of the book? Yeah. Yeah, that book turned out to be somewhat of a of a touchstone for me. John Gunther was an American correspondent who was in Europe for the war and in the Pacific. And he came back to the United States after World War II and, and looked upon it with some strangeness. I mean, he described himself as feeling a bit like a man from Mars. And I have to say that felt familiar to me because I came back to the U.S. after a decade abroad and it felt strange to me. So Gunther's solution was that he began this long travel. He went across the country and ended up writing a book called Inside USA that is some, it's sort of revered among people who know about it. It's considered one of these great documents of a time in America in which his project was quite simple. He went out and he asked people, what do you believe in most? And he got all kinds of answers, everything from the Pythagorean theorem to the high tariffs, low tariffs, Santa Claus. But the thing that people kept returning to and it can almost look naive to us now, is this idea that, as he put it in the book, I believe in a fair chance. I believe in the idea that a person can get somewhere if given the opportunity. And frankly, at the core of my project, at the core of trying to understand where the United States is now, was, was asking what happened to that, what it now sounds to us like this rather innocent belief in this very American idea of being able to get ahead if you have the right combination of luck and will and gumption. And that faith, that confidence has quite clearly evaporated. We see it in the statistics. And I wanted to go out and understand actually what was behind those changes in the numbers. So he's writing in the 1940s. And with all books about America today, you know, I always ask myself where it all went wrong. Where was the, where were the wrong turns taken? Some of the trends you describe, for example, the kind of shuttering of factories, which devastated many communities, you know, going back to the, the 1960s. And of course, if you go back further in American history, you've got periods of enormous division. Uh, not you know not yeah. just the civil war but but at other times enormous inequality during the gilded age for example so when do you get the impression that, that sort of america was healthy and cohesive and that there was this belief that you you know that john gunther found in the 1940s was this actually quite a small period of time maybe between the depression and the 1960s like w when when do you think oh yeah america would seem to be on the right track 
Well, this is a live matter in our country. You know, we're talking a lot these days about whether or not that post-war American ideal was either uh, a fiction, whether it was a mirage. And, you know, look, we need to state the obvious here that the the post-war American ideal was really advantageous, mostly if you were a white, straight male. And if you were those things, then it didn't seem all that good. And, you know, I think this period in American life is coming to terms with that reality and recognizing that for most of American history, there have been these long periods in which people have been disadvantaged because of who they are. And we're, we're talking about that more explicitly now. I think it's also true, and these two, these two facts can exist side by side, that it is also true that there was a period in the post-war American uh, experience, so roughly from the 40s to the early 70s, when there was broad-based, with, with some huge exceptions, but there was generally economic growth for people in the working class and, and the middle class. And the reason why it's important to acknowledge that is because it stopped at a certain point, it, or it slowed down so dramatically that you know, if we say that there never was a period of substantial inclusive growth, then we're actually ignoring what were a set of policy choices that made that possible. And we're, you know, in a curious way, we're sort of feeding into the narrative that there is no way to make inclusive economic choices, when in fact, we do know that there are some ways to do it. Yes, because you do um, bring up at one point, the sort of problematic idea on the left that it was ever thus, and that Mm -hmm. there was always, it was always unfair, and it was always unequal, and it was always rigged in favor of the rich, which to some extent is true. Right. Um, but, th- you know, that, that sort of maybe includes what has changed. And one change that you describe is wealthy Americans earning a lot more, but also sort of shedding their responsibilities to society at large. And Greenwich is like, you know, is it the richest or is it the second richest? <laughs> it depends on which you measure, but it's up there at the top. Yeah, uh, they're not short of cash. What do you think happened to the rich over this period and their sense of how they related to the rest of society? I think it's such an important story, Dorian. You know, in some ways, that's kind of the beating heart of this project. And I should announce my priors. You know, I care about these questions, partly because I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a place that, you know, I sort of feel like I know it in my bones to some degree. And I have watched a change. And it's a change that's worth describing. Because without, you know, let's not have a sort of golden age fallacy that everything was glorious for the first you know, 100 years or for the last 100 years. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that there was a period in which the most powerful Republicans in America, people like Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, that family grew up in Greenwich. Prescott Bush was the head of the local town council known as the representative town meeting. He ended up being a senator from Connecticut. And Prescott Bush, you know, he was patrician and aristocratic in all kinds of ways. He also believed in what we would describe today as some fairly progressive policies. He believed in the idea that there needed to be a robust welfare state. He believed in the idea of a woman's right to choose. He believed in a lot of things that we would now consider to be, in some ways, anathema to the modern Republican Party. And what happened along the way, the change from from the Prescott Bush era of the 1960s and 50s to uh, today is in some ways the story of what happened to American politics. And I think, you know, there are a lot of explanations, but one of the things that I would point out, which I think is really important, 
is that the idea of the role that money plays in American society has been changed. And it's you saw it in pop culture expression in the 1980s with the idea that greed is good, but in a much subtler way, even, you know, that was a caricature, but actually on a daily basis, it was kind of filtering into society to the point that the Prescott-Bush generation, they had money clearly, but it wasn't the kind of thing that was a constant daily battle of ambition and vanity to to try to demonstrate who had more. In fact, there's a famous story that bankers at Morgan Stanley used to compete to see who could wear the cheapest wristwatch. And that was a you know sort of ostentatious in its own way. But you go from that to today in Greenwich. I mean, this is a, a real example that there is a, a hedge fund manager who built a house in Greenwich that is in square footage terms larger than the Taj Mahal. And how that happened over the course of two generations is the story of how American politics got so distressed. And you spoke to some of these people in Greenwich. How do they justify what they're doing? Are they in denial or do they have a reason why it's fine to just make as much money as possible and, uh, you know, not pay much in taxes and so on? You have this, you have a spectrum of views. I mean, some people are scandalized by it and say, this is not who we are. And we need to get back to a much greater sense of with resources comes obligation. And we need to be using our advantages to help other people. That's a lot. That's a large number of people in town. And I say this in celebration, frankly, I mean, there's a lot of people who have looked upon what has happened and said, what happened to us? We have to begin to, to fix this. There are others who are in some ways kind of in the grip of this foot race towards greater acquisition, which they find it very hard to step outside of it. And there's one extraordinary example. I mean, one of the guys who was arrested in the college admissions case, you'll remember that that was an example in which prosperous Americans used their resources to basically buy their either to change the results of their children's college entrance exams or to fake their applications in various ways. One of them was our neighbor who lived a few doors away when I was growing up in Greenwich. And and he had spent $75,000 to change the results of his child's standardized tests and then uh, had gone to prison for it. And and I asked him not too long ago, I said, what happened? Honestly, what, (laughs) what came over you? And he said, the truth is, he said, I think achievement is like a drug. It is this thing in which once you've acquired one element of it, the joy of it fades almost immediately and you're desperate to get the next one and the next one and the next one. And he said, and, and I think this is the key fact, Dorian, is that he said, I felt like I was in a corrupt system. And if I didn't play along, he said, I would be disadvantaged. Yes. And I think that is actually quite a revealing fact. That's the cue that he's picking up from a failure of us policing ourselves as a culture to say, no, 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 we must stop that kind of behavior. Otherwise, it becomes the norm. And I should point out that the the pillars of this book, of the narrative, are these uh, certain key characters that you interview um, over a span of years. One I found fascinating was Chip Scouron. Scouron? Yeah, Scouron, right. A hedge fund manager who was jailed for insider trading and has now become a critic of the super rich. He's supporting Black Lives Matter, you know. And now, obviously... Not everybody, you can't send everyone to jail in order for them to have a change of heart. Are there other people like him who have not perhaps had that dramatic humbling, who have sort of changed their mind, who I suppose have kicked that drug that you talk about? I think there are. In fact, I know there are. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through various experiences of the last few years that have had this 
they call it an enforced moment of clarity. And for some, it has literally been going to going to prison. I mean, in, in Chip Scourin's case, it was this moment of going off to prison and finding himself side by side with people from very different backgrounds, black, white, Latino, people who had never had the advantages that he had as a hedge fund manager. And as he says it, they're the ones who kept me alive. And there is this wonderful expression, Brian Stevenson, the civil rights lawyer and leader, uses this concept of what he tells people to get proximate, by which he means the only way that you'll actually become aware of what you can do as a citizen is by getting close to people who are in distress, by to people who are suffering. And Chip Scourin, in, in, for reasons he never wanted, got proximate to that kind of vulnerability and as a result was kind of awakened to it. And in a curious way, and I think this is an optimistic observation, that the effect of the pandemic over the last couple of years has made many more Americans at the top of society aware that it has sort of given them a forced moment of proximity to just how vulnerable people are at the bottom and has caused a lot of soul searching. And the same thing about the killing of George Floyd. It has sort of forced people to get proximate. And that runs through this book over and over. I was struck by the degree to which our ability to self-seclude and self-segregate makes us immune to the recognition of other people's suffering. And it is only once you can sort of force people out of those boundaries, those enclosures, that you begin to get any kind of greater political awareness. To get away from Greenwich and, and the rich, West Virginia strikes me as, as a sort of reminded me of, of Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas? Because mm-hmm. you, you, you're supposed to talking about a large number of working class voters loyally supporting the people who literally poison their water and air and obviously don't care about them in, in myriad ways. And that seems as that to a lot of people, that's as baffling as it now as it was in 2004 when, when, when Frank wrote that book. What did your sort of on the ground reporting tell you about why this alliance holds up between the wealthy and the working class? Well, you know, I call it a joint venture in the book because that's really what it was that, you know, establishment Republicans knew that they had this opportunity for an alliance. You know, it's always been a mistake to describe Donald Trump as a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. That's just not what it was. I mean, the establishment, people like Mitch McConnell, people like some of the most powerful Republicans in America, you know, the Republican Town Committee in Greenwich, those kinds of folks they did in the end go for Donald Trump. In West Virginia, there is a, just an extraordinary story of political realignment. When I was a young baby journalist in West Virginia in 1999, it was all Democrats. I mean, it was the congressional delegation was all Democrats. They, it, it was a place that still felt very attached to Franklin Roosevelt's legacy. You would go into people's houses and they would say, you know, I, I still have a picture of FDR on my wall and stuff like that. And over the course of 20 years, the political character of West Virginia has flipped more dramatically than almost anywhere else in the country. It's now very reliable Republican territory. And one of the explanations that you hear from people is that, and this is, I think, an important subtlety, is that it it was less an expression of love for the Republican Party than it was an expression of despair at politics as it's practiced. Because People looked at their lives and they said, we've bet on Democrats for 80 years and we're and we're still essentially losing ground. We're we're falling behind. We're 48th or 49th or 50th on many measures of American 
achievement and health and welfare. And so something must be wrong. And so we're going to pull the fire alarm politically, and we're going to bet on this guy like Donald Trump. And the reason I think, Dorian, there's an important fact that's worth mentioning is that in 2016, the Democratic primary was won by Bernie Sanders in all 55 counties of the state of West Virginia, which hmm. is extraordinary when you say, well, I thought this was such a conservative piece of the country. You, what, you, what it tells you is actually no. These are people who are either saying, I want Bernie Sanders or I want somebody like Donald Trump. What they, what they don't want is the politics that has defined the last 40 or 50 years of American experience. And for them has been a period of loss and a period of falling away. And so in one-on-one polls, often Bernie Sanders would beat Donald Trump in West Virginia. This is a sign of, of a place that is actually just throwing up its hands and saying, no, I, we just reject the political establishment as it is on both sides. And of course, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin uh, is now one of the most talked about politicians in America because he's a conservative Democrat whose vote on any measure is decisive because the majority is so thin. I don't know much about him except that he's always saying no um, until I, you know, but I read this and, you know, there's, 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 there's money he's received from various lobbies like, like coal and oil. What do you think it, it explains his behavior? Is it simply that he's beholden to certain interest groups or does he have a certain, you know, sort of stubborn, vision of what politics should be. And and that's why he doesn't want to sort of play hardball in the way that the majority of Democrats would like to. The truth is, you know, as much as I enumerate the ways in which he is this recipient of money from coal and gas, the truth is, I actually think it's the latter explanation. I, I say this with some, you know, having given this a lot of time and study, I did a profile of Joe Manchin for the New Yorker magazine earlier this year. And in the end, one of the things that really explains him is that West Virginia, you have to remember, is this piece of the country that defines itself as almost sort of impossibly independent minded. I mean, the state motto is mountaineers are always free. It's the only state in the country that joined the Union after breaking away from the Confederacy during the Civil War. It has this extraordinarily specific idea of itself as being anti-establishmentarian. And that is at its core. Now, Joe Manchin, so that's part of it. And then on top of it, Joe Manchin is this little tiny blue island in a sea of red. I mean, he's the last member of the Democratic congressional delegation. Everybody else is a Republican. So as a pure functional political matter, in order for him to be reelected, he has to be able to go home at the end of the week and say to his neighbors, I fought the Democrats every step of the way. And Interestingly, in the end, you often see that he does side with the party. And in private conversations that I've had with Democrats all over Washington over the last few months, they will say, look, he's driving us nuts. But we think that in the end, he probably will figure out a way uh, to get us to get us over the goal. And some of the kind of, uh, I suppose, the tougher measures that Joe Manchin is sometimes holding up, you know, like uh, abolishing the filibuster, also things that Biden has certainly been reluctant about. I mean, you've written a whole book about him. And you say in this one that he explicitly wants to restore empathy and civility to American life as a person and his own life experiences um, make him very, very different to Trump. Do you think that he has come to accept the political culture that he experienced in the Senate for decades, you know, when bipartisanship was possible, is gone. And that there is a certain kind of civility that is actually now an illusion. He has been slow to come to that. And actually, I think really truth is in his heart of hearts, he would tell you, no, I can still 
find ways of working with Republicans. And there are these curious pieces of evidence. I mean, the truth is they were able to fashion this bipartisan infrastructure bill, more than a trillion dollars for roads and bridges and so on, which I would not have predicted them being able to do. You know, they were also able to get this bill through that is, you know, what they call the Competition Act, which is designed mostly to counter Chinese competition. That was also done on a bipartisan basis. But look, what you're really asking about is civility. And I think on some level, he has been shocked by the way in which there has not been a return to the mean of American politics, the the idea that they can get along. That has left him... I think, unsure quite how to pick the lock because no amount of appeal to, you know, the old Senate locker room chummy relationship is going to eradicate the effect of Donald Trump. He still squats on the party and defines its culture and its cruelties, let's be honest. And I think that has been hard for Biden to accept. There's one other area, an important area I wanted to touch on, is that you quote a startling report by Penn America about the consequences of local newspapers closing, like the one where you began your career. And I think anybody can guess that this is, this is you know, bad for journalism. But can you briefly explain how it makes politics worse in perhaps ways that people would not uh, anticipate? Yeah, this is a huge, in some ways, hidden fact of American political trouble, is that when a local newspaper dies. You see the effect on our politics in very measurable ways. People are less likely to vote. They're less likely to run for office. They're much more likely to associate themselves with national political issues. I mean, there's a sort of amazing body of research that shows that in this country, people uh, over the decades have been able to recall the name of the vice president of the United States. But over the years, they've found it harder to recall the name of their own state governor. And so what the decline of local news, which has been declining for sort of very clear, almost sort of simple economic reasons that, you know, the rise of the internet and, and, uh, and so on, that it has meant that people are becoming almost they sort of upload their identity to this national political cloud and they begin to see themselves as much more uh, associated with somebody who is a similar person to them politically in another state. But it means that on the local level, it's driving them apart and they're much less engaged in uh, the daily work of politics. And that is that is very damaging. Wildland concludes with the storming of the Capitol on, on January the 6th, which um, I remember reading your report from the, the crowd there for the New Yorker. Now, the reporting here goes back several years. So obviously, you, you know, you could not have imagined how that was going to conclude. And yet it seems like the perfect, in a grim way, sort of culmination of the narrative, given that obviously, you know, this book had been going around your head for years when that yeah. was actually happening. I mean, did you feel like, oh, God, this is kind of where it was leading? Yeah, in a very sort of sad but natural way. I mean, I hate to say this, but I was standing at the foot of the Capitol on that day reporting on Americans storming our own seat of government. And I was thinking to myself, this almost feels like the inevitable result of all of these trends that I've been following over the course of the last seven years. I mean, the the cynicism at the top of the Republican Party, the gross deceptions perpetrated by Donald Trump, giving people these illusions about, about COVID and about the 2020 election. And all of this was reaching back years. You could see the preamble to it if you looked. And 
I am reminded of the fact that the, the first time I visited the U.S. Capitol after moving back to the U.S. in 2013 was on the day in 2013, the first day I returned to work was the day the government shut down for a purely self-imposed political internal feud created by the Republican Senator Ted Cruz. And in some ways, that day, it was this warning sign of what was to come, which was this ultimately the breaking of a bond, a breaking of a faith between members of the American public and the government that uh, that served in their name. And finally, you've spent a long time with your interviewees, followed their lives closely. It's not just sort of uh, an hour in a diner. What happens when you finish a project like this? Do you keep those lines of communication open? Do you expect um, that you will speak to them again at some point? Yeah, I do. I mean, part of it has become you, you sort of become a little bit a part of one another's lives. I wrote a book about China that was in spirit and approach quite sort of somewhat similar that I was following people's lives for a long time. And I just over the years, I tend to stay in touch with people because I'm interested in what happens. And they tend to just get used to the idea of telling me about the evolutions in their lives. And I find that, you know, this work is strangely a little bit less like the journalism that I do day to day than it is like something a little more academic, like anthropology or ethnography. That's how it feels. And um, watching people's lives evolve over the long term is actually the only way that I can begin to make sense of what's happening beneath the surface. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Evan Osnos. My pleasure. Thanks, Dorian. Wildland is out on 16th of September, published by Bloomsbury. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.